0: in John chapter 1, uh, verse 19. John 1, verse 19. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the beauty of this morning and the moisture and the change of seasons the stillness that is about this morning. And we direct our attention towards you, and as we study your word, we pray that you would feed us, that you'd help us to see Jesus in a greater way, and that you'd also help us to find our identity inside of who Jesus is. So Father, would you send your spirit and really bless our time in your word, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. John the Baptist is challenged with the question of, who are you? Kind of a difficult question. If someone were to ask you, who are you, would you define uh, yourself? And they're really coming to question and challenge uh, John the Baptist. And in answering this question, he directs us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. As we focus on the identity of Christ, then we also really discover who we are, our identity, and our purpose. So let's begin in verse 19. Now, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? John the Baptist, who God had his hand upon his life, even in conception. His parents were old. Elizabeth is old, and Zechariah, and they find that they're with child. When he was in the womb and Mary was visiting, we know that he leapt in the womb at the very presence of Jesus Christ as John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. Now he's out in the wilderness preaching repentance, preparing people for Jesus Christ. People are coming and listening, being baptized. This gets the attention of those that are in Jerusalem. And they send out the Levites and the priests to figure out who this guy is. Who are you? What's he doing out there? They're coming for the purpose of inspection instead of information. I don't know about you, but I don't really enjoy those type of of questions. I love questions that are sincere and genuine, where someone's wanting to grow and looking for information, but those questions that are simply more critical and more, I'm gonna inspect you, and, and those are not so fun. And so John has that type of question. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So the first thing that John declares is, I am not the Christ. And the word confessed in the Greek, it implies that he was emphatic about this. It's not something that he just said once, but he wants to get the point across, I am not the Christ. Now, why would they even think that John the Baptist could potentially be the Christ? It's because of a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, the last book of the Old Testament. says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So because of that prophecy, they were looking for the potential of, man, I just jumped ahead in my notes. I like looked at your faces and you're like, we were talking about the Messiah, and then you started talking about Elijah. So so let's talk about the Messiah. So why would they think that he was potentially the Christ? because they were looking for the Christ to come. This is the nation of Israel, they knew the Old Testament scriptures, and they were longing for and anticipating for the Christ to come. Christ means Messiah, Messiah means the anointed one. So as John the Baptist is ministering and there's a lot of people following, the natural question is, are you the Christ? And John responds, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. And this is important for us as well. We know this obviously in our hearts and our lives that we're not people's savior. But sometimes when someone is struggling that we love, that we're close to, we wanna fix it, don't we? We wanna solve it. We wanna be the answer to their, their sin problem. We wanna to try to unpack this difficulty or to see them go from a place of discouragement to encouragement. And ultimately, that's something that only Christ can do in their lives. And like John the Baptist, we can be a voice that points people to Jesus, but we can't be Jesus for them. You can't be Jesus for your spouse. You can't be Jesus for your children or your parents or or a close friend. As much as we would want to or we would desire to. So maybe you've been trying to solve someone's problems. And thinking, I've got to fix this for them. That's a burden that we can't bear, that we can't carry. And take a deep breath I'm not the Christ, know that. I'm not the savior, I can't solve this for them. Only Jesus can fix this and be the answer for them. But also sometimes we tend to put people on a pedestal when we shouldn't. Someone that's like John the Baptist, who's following God, who's separated for God's purposes, who's being used by the Lord in our lives, and we put them in this place that only Jesus should be. There's no other savior other than Jesus Christ. So maybe it's a mentor, someone who's discipled you, or a pastor, a teacher, an author, someone that God's used in your life. Don't put them on the level of Christ, because the reality is we're all sinners, aren't we? It doesn't matter how much someone's used by the Lord. John the Baptist is still a sinner. That favorite teacher that we have is, is still a sinner. They would articulate to you, I have so much sin struggles, and so we want to make sure that we understand we're not the Christ, but then... Someone that we look up to is not the Christ as well. Hey, now let's get to Elijah. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? So this is why they would ask the question about Elijah as Malachi 4.5, which I've already read to you, right? Is this prophecy that Elijah is going to come before the dreadful day of the Lord? This is a pretty natural question as well because John the Baptist and Elijah are similar in their, their ministry. They have a similar appearance, a similar message, a message of repentance and getting right with the Lord. Elijah called the children of Israel on their idolatry to Baal, And here John the Baptist is making people aware of their sin and their need for, for Christ. And he responds and says, I am not. I am not Elijah. And when we're looking at who we are and what our identity is, sometimes we will try to be somebody like Elijah where they've been used in our lives and so we begin to emulate them but instead of being who God has made us to be, we try to be them. John the Baptist wasn't gonna be a good Elijah. He was gonna be a great John the Baptist. So be who God's made you to be. You weren't supposed to be Elijah. You weren't supposed to be this mentor that God has, has placed in your life. Are you comfortable in your own skin? Even when it comes down to your physical appearance, do you believe that you're fearfully and wonderfully made? That God made you just the way he wants you to be? Or do you have arguments with God going, really God, why did you have to give me this physical feature, right? Be comfortable with it. This is the way that God has made my body, your personality, this is how I'm wired. These are my strengths and even some of my weaknesses. I'm going to be who God has made me to be. I'm not Elijah. I'm not this person in my life that, that I look up to. I'm, I'm John the Baptist. He was comfortable with who God had made him to be. And the next question, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Notice it says, are you the prophet? This is a prophecy out of Deuteronomy 18 that there would be a prophet who would arise that was like Moses from amongst the children of Israel. And they were looking for this prophet as well. And John very quickly says no to this. When someone begins to ask about us, isn't it tempting to really take the bait and begin to talk about ourselves? Oh, thanks for asking about me. Thanks for asking about my interests or, or what I'm into. And John really quickly here says, I'm not going to focus on who I am. I'm going to try to steer this conversation to who Jesus is. In chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist will say, he must increase, but I must decrease. John knew that Jesus was the one to take the center stage. He wanted all of the tension to be on Christ, and his ministry had to diminish. Christ needed to increase and he needed to, to decrease. Paul really took on this same approach as well. He writes in Second Corinthians 2 verse 4, he says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. So Paul was very careful to say, I'm going to preach Christ because the power is in Christ. For us, to rest as we go into this holiday week and say, how can I decrease and Christ increase? How can I point people to who Jesus is in the conversations that are presented before me? In verse 22, then they said to him, who are you that we may give you an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? We've got to say something about yourself. We've got to give an answer to these guys in Jerusalem, to the religious community. In verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Well, this is who I am. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he quotes Isaiah 40, verse three. All four gospels attribute Isaiah 40, verse three to John the Baptist. And the idea of making straight the way of the Lord. Preparing the way of the Lord is if a king was coming into a community, there would be a group of workers that would go out to the highway and make sure that the highway was smooth. That there wasn't any potholes, if you would. So that the king had a smooth entry into the community. And John's job was to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. He believed that Christ was coming And so he was preaching a message of repentance that you need a savior and preparing people's hearts for the Lord. And this is where John finds his identity. He says, I'm a voice. I'm not the Christ, I'm not the prophet, I'm not Elijah, I'm just a voice. But a powerful voice to point people to Jesus Christ. You know, we've got some microphones up here right now. So when you look at this microphone, It's a tool, isn't it? And you could really speak anything through this microphone that you desired to. You could speak of sports. You could speak of Christ. You could speak of yourself. But think of your life as a microphone. And you go, well, wait a second. I don't really feel like I have much influence. I don't feel like I'm like John the Baptist. I'm no Billy Graham, right? But in your words and your actions and my words and my actions— We have opportunity to point people to Jesus Christ, to prepare people for Jesus. The second coming of Christ is going to happen, isn't it? And if we don't see the second coming of Christ in our lifetime, everyone is going to stand before Christ. And they're either prepared for that moment through salvation or they're not. And there's so much power in the person and the work and the name of Jesus, which represents the character of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be an expert on Jesus or the Bible to be able to share him. Do you know salvation? Do you know why you need to be saved? Do you know how someone can receive salvation? Letting someone know that Jesus loves you. Asking the question if they believe in Christ as their Savior. But our life has purpose. You're a voice. I'm a voice. You're having more influence than you realize. There's more people listening and watching than we uh, would realize. In verse 24. Now, those who were sent were from the Pharisees. These were the big boys, these were the heavy hitters. The guys that were sent to ask the questions, the Levites and the priests, they're being sent by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were an important sect of Judaism, about 6,000 group of men where they set themselves aside to the, the strict observance of the law to the point where they added to the Word of God. They added oral tradition to the, the Word of God. The Apostle Paul, before he was saved, was a Pharisee. Why are they concerned about uh, John the Baptist? And we'll see in verse 25. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? What gives you the authority to be able to baptize? Some understanding of the nation of Israel and the Old Testament helps here because the nation of Israel would often experience baptism for ceremonial cleansing. If you were unclean, you couldn't come into the temple unless you went through a baptism, a ceremonial cleansing called a mikvah. And this would take place by the priests and the Levites. These were religious duties that couldn't just take place. These guys were in charge of this and they're feeling a little bit threatened of like, what's John the Baptist doing baptizing? What authority does he have to be able uh, to do this? And John's baptism was different, but they're feeling threatened. One thing that has been true throughout church history is look out when you mess up with the religious community, right? You you get the religious community offended and you could really experience some persecution. Who were the ones that really were pushing the initiative to crucify Christ? It was the Pharisees. It was the Sadducees. It was the religious community because their traditions were getting messed with by Christ. In verse 26, John answered them and said, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is not preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. So he says, I baptized with water. John's baptism was all about repentance. People getting baptized, saying, look, I am acknowledging that I'm a sinner and and I need a savior. And he says, there's one coming who's after me, who is preferred before me. So even though he's coming after me, he's preferred before me. So now we start to look at who John saw himself to be. He saw himself to be a voice, and then he also finds himself as a servant where he has put Christ above himself. In our core of our identity, have we put Christ before ourselves? What's maybe our greatest enemy? We would probably go, well, the devil. The devil is our greatest enemy. He's, he's definitely an enemy. But our greatest enemy is our selfishness, isn't it? It's my selfishness. And it's so important to see Christ for who he is, the glory of Christ, and say, Jesus, you're preferred before me. Today, you're preferred before me. Choosing every day to say, Christ, you're preferred before me. I've put you above myself. And then this is expressed in... John the Baptist declaring, I'm not even worthy to take off his sandals. This was the job of the lowest servant in the house to take off the sandal of the master. Makes sense. Who wants to mess with feet, right? To this day, it's like, I don't really want to touch your feet. You, I'm pretty uncomfortable if you touch my feet. You're like, I'm uncomfortable with the thought of touching your feet. I have toes like fingers. You probably didn't want to know that, right? Right? <laughs> feet are just gross, right? John the Baptist is saying, look, I'm not even worthy to take on the position of the lowliest servant. There was a culture where the rabbis would train uh, younger apprentice teachers, and in that, the apprentice would have to serve the rabbi, but there was a line that was too far for the rabbi to go that would be an abuse of his authority, and that was to ask the apprentice to take off his sandals. John knows this, and he's talking to the religious community, and he's saying, I'm not even worthy to be the apprentice. I'm not even worthy to be the lowliest of of servant. And that can really get into our identity if we choose it. When the Apostle Paul would introduce himself in a letter, many times he'd say, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. A bondservant was a slave by choice. The nation of Israel, if you came upon hard times, you could then be someone's servant, someone's slave for seven years. And at the end of that, they had to let you go free. But if you found that master to be benevolent and kind, and you said, it's better in my master's house, you could choose to serve them the rest of your life and become a bond servant. And Paul's saying, I have chosen to be the servant of Jesus Christ. He's not forcing me to be the servant of of Christ, but I'm choosing this. How do we know if this has started to become part of our identity when someone treats us like a servant, when someone asks us to do something, and maybe our reaction is, I'm above that. I've got too much experience for that. That's for the new guy. Or do we see it as an opportunity to say, I'm serving Christ, and I'm not worthy to be able to do even the most simplest thing for Christ? This surrender really is the key to the abundant life. Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, for my sake, you're going to find it. My most miserable days on this planet is when I'm focused on myself. When it's King Eric, my agenda. But the days that are most satisfying are the ones where I'm submitted to King Jesus and saying, I'm not worthy to do anything that you would have for me. Verse 28, these things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So if you think of the location of Jerusalem, and then you look at Jericho, and beyond Jericho is the Jordan River, John is baptizing on the other side of of the Jordan. So it's quite a ways from Jerusalem, quite a ways for these men to, to travel out to the wilderness. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So you have this conversation about who John the Baptist is and the next day, here comes Jesus. And John has revealed to him that Jesus is the Messiah. We'll see why in the next few verses. And he gives this command, behold. In the Greek, it's an imperative which means that you're to stop and to look and gaze upon Christ. John doesn't want anybody to miss Jesus. He says, behold, this man right here. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God had not sent a prophet to the children of Israel in roughly 400 years. Malachi was the last message to the children of Israel. 400 years of silence, which was very unique for God throughout all of the Old Testament. There were these prophets that God was raising up, and then God just stays silent for 400 years. John the Baptist breaks the silence. Can you imagine? And he says, look, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In one sentence, John sums up the message of the Bible sums up the message of salvation. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God killed an animal to provide a covering. They realized they were naked. Like, okay, we're going to sew some fig leaves together for a covering, not an adequate covering. God, in his grace and compassion, then kills an animal to provide an animal skin for clothing. Because of their sin, there was death. There's this innocent animal that had to be killed to provide that covering for them. God is introducing this idea of atonement where someone else has to die for your sin. We see in Genesis 22 where God gives the promised son to Abraham, Isaac. Then he tests Abraham and says, I want you to take your one and only son and go sacrifice him to me in a location which I will show you. Amazing in the response of Abraham is he says, "We're going to go and worship. It's the first time worship is mentioned in the Bible. Complete surrender to God." Isaac starts to get a little bit nervous, saying, "Where's the lamb for the sacrifice?" And Abraham speaks these words, and he says, "My son, God will provide for himself the lamb a burnt offering." In the midst of this, he speaks words that are prophetic that God himself is gonna provide a lamb for the sacrifice. And Abraham's getting ready to kill his son and God tells him to stop and there's a ram that's caught in the thicket. God ultimately didn't make Abraham sacrifice his son, but God was giving a very powerful picture of atonement. It's really hard in words to put in perspective that God would send his son to die for our sins. But we see this in the love that Abraham had for his son and that the father has for his son to send Jesus to die for our sins. It's very personal, but it's also very legal, the atonement. It's almost as if a, a judge has his son come before him who's been caught many times speeding, driving driving recklessly, having a, a, a DUI. And as the judge, he has to find his son guilty. If he doesn't, he's not a fair and righteous judge. But then as the father, he takes off the robe and chooses to pay the penalty for his son's fine and even take the son's time in jail. That's atonement. God as the judge says you're guilty of sin. But God, as the loving Father, says, look, I'm going to pay the price for your sin through the blood of Jesus. We see this atonement concept, truth, develop when the children of Israel are delivered out of Egypt at Passover. The last plague that takes place upon Egypt was the death of the oldest son. God says to the nation of Israel, kill a lamb put the blood of the lamb on the door so that death passes over, judgment passes over, and your oldest son doesn't die. Can you imagine for kids? I mean, kids are watching these things and are like, why are you killing that lamb? You know, my kids would be like, what happened to dad? What what are you doing? Why are you putting the blood of the lamb on the door? And what, God told you to do this? And so God was teaching that innocence of this lamb had to be killed to provide for there to be judgment that would pass over. The day of atonement was one day a year where a goat was sacrificed for the nation of Israel where their sin was covered. So you've got an animal for a man in Genesis 22, then you have an animal for a family, an animal for a nation, and all of this is leading not to an animal, but the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain for our sins to take away the sins of the world. Now you have one sacrifice that takes away the sins of all of the world. As the Spirit of God is speaking to John the Baptist, John the Baptist doesn't say, Behold the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now is that true about Jesus? Yes. But in his first coming, he's coming as a sacrificial lamb. In Isaiah 53, it says this, And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He humbled himself as a lamb to go to the cross to die for our sins. Now, how do you appropriate... The sacrifice of Jesus Christ to result in forgiveness. It's through faith. This is not universalism that because Jesus died, everyone is saved. The Bible teaches the only ones that are saved that are forgiven are those that believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus died for them. Turning from sin and asking Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Now, if you've made that decision, church, this morning you're forgiven. Your sins have been taken away from you. Notice the emphasis of this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Your sin has been removed uh, from you. You're white as snow. You're forgiven. What an amazing gift that God would give to us. This is something that we could not provide for ourselves. We could not provide salvation. We could not provide forgiveness. No amount of works could do this. This is only the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ as I was thinking about this, this week, I was really struggling of how to be able to articulate the beauty and the power of the reality of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And words can't do it. Words really cannot do it. This is the amazing grace of God, the mystery of God, that he would forgive us of our sins and allow us to be the children of God. What good news Don't move away from this message. It's so easy for the church and for us as believers to move away from this reality. I'm aware of the fact that this morning I need the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ just as much as when I got saved. Part of the Christian life is I don't ever stop adding to the sin pot. Wouldn't it be great if you got saved and you never sinned again? But the reality is, until I go home to be with the Lord, I am gonna sin. Now, do I try not to sin? Absolutely. But my need for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ doesn't go away. And I'm so thankful this morning for his love, his sacrifice. Where would we be without the sacrifice of Christ? But because we have the sacrifice of Christ, we have forgiveness and acceptance and we're in Christ. So verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who's preferred before me, for he was before me. This is the one I've been talking about. I didn't know him, but he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Now, John the Baptist knew Jesus because they were cousins, but he didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah until this point. John is being faithful to be the voice, to teach repentance, to baptize people in anticipation for the Messiah. This is how he knows Jesus is the Messiah. And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. This speaks of the baptism of Christ. We know from the other gospels that John the Baptist had the privilege of baptizing Jesus. Jesus wasn't being baptized for sin or need for for salvation. But his baptism was one of submission to the plan of the Father. John was hesitant, and Jesus encouraged him, saying, no, you need to do this so that all things could be fulfilled. When Christ was baptized, then the Father speaks and says, this is my son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Spirit comes down like a dove, not a dove, but like a dove. And the Spirit then remains on Jesus. And there's the emphasis in John's writing about the Spirit coming down upon Jesus and remaining upon Christ. Throughout all of Christ's earthly ministry, he's empowered by the Spirit. Because as God, he can do anything. But in his humanity, he needed to rely upon the Spirit. And he's showing us how a human being, a man, can be filled with the Holy Spirit And be empowered to be used by the Spirit. In verse 33, I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So God had spoken to John the Baptist, the one who sent John. When you see the Spirit descending on someone and remaining, you know that they are the Messiah. And that's what he saw, so he testifies, Jesus is the Son of God. Now, I don't want you to miss this. At the end of verse 33, it says, The one who has the Spirit come upon them is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 3, verse 11, John is still speaking. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The word baptize means to immerse. Uh, The reason that we do full immersion here at RMC for baptism is because that's what the word means. It means to immerse. Sometimes when we're doing baptisms in our fancy horse troughs that we have here at Rocky Mountain Calvary, I'll, I'll not get someone fully back into the water. Like their head doesn't go all the way back. It still takes, right? It's, it's, it's an issue of, of, of the heart. But the whole idea is to, to be immersed. It's always interesting in meeting with people before they get baptized. We have a little baptism meeting and you can see kind of the, the concern and the fear and the uneasiness in their eyes. And so I always let them know, we've never lost somebody in baptism. We won't hold you down too long. There's, there's been a few that we've been tempted to hold down too long. But. <laughs> so the, the idea is that John baptized with water, but Jesus will baptize us in the Holy Spirit, immerse us in the Holy Spirit. Christ died upon the cross. He rose again. The disciples are meeting in a room in fear. The doors are locked, and Christ doesn't use the entrance. He comes through the walls. He appears, it says, peace be unto you. And he breathed on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Jesus, before he died on the cross, told the disciples, it's good for me to go away. And like, How could this be good for Jesus to go away? Because he said, I'm going to send the helper to you. A relationship with God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, goes from being external to internal. Even though Jesus was right there physically with the disciples, He wasn't in the disciples. When Christ died and rose again, to those who received Jesus through faith, the moment that we receive Christ, we then have the Holy Spirit. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that's better. That's a better relationship with God than to even have Christ standing right next to you. And to me, this is the key to the Christian life is the truth and the reality that we've received the Holy Spirit. You look in the book of Acts where God is moving and they were empowered with the spirit. Jesus said, I don't want you to go do anything until you've experienced the filling, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So they went and prayed until God fulfilled that promise. What if that was the mode of the church today that said we don't want to step out in anything until we've prayed, until we've waited upon the Lord and we know that the Lord has met us and has empowered us for what he has, has called us to do. So many times I try to live the Christian life apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And God says, it's not by power nor by might, but by my spirit. There's so many encouragements in the New Testament to walk in the spirit, to not grieve the spirit, to allow the spirit of God to lead us and to guide us in the fruits of the spirit, love and joy and peace and patience. We can't produce those on our own. Where well, you're saying, well, how do I experience the reality of the Holy Spirit? Jesus said, you know how to give good gifts to your kids being evil. How much does the, Holy Fa- Ho- the Heavenly Father give the Spirit to those who ask? Even though the Spirit is in us, for us to ask and say, Father, would you fill me with your Spirit, make me sensitive to your Spirit, and a willingness to give control. To say, I'm, I'm ready to follow what the Spirit is leading and asking me to do. But this was key to John the Baptist's understanding about Christ and the greatness of Jesus, the Lamb of God. He's going to take away our sins and bring us into this new relationship with God where we're immersed in the Holy Spirit. He leaves us with another title of Christ. In verse 34, he says, And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. A commentator named Trench puts it this way, In naming him the Son of God, the Baptist speaks with unclouded vision, he means nothing less than the full Christian doctrine that the man Jesus is also the eternal son of the eternal father, co-equal, co-eternal. And Jesus being the son of God means he's God, but it also shows us the relationship that the father and the son share together. John, the disciple who writes the gospel of John, he uses this title 16 times in the gospel of John. So hopefully this morning, you've been encouraged about the greatness of Christ. Imagine living at this time where there was 400 years of silence, where God had not spoken to the children of Israel. Then to hear the voice of John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When was the last time you were so stoked that you were loved by Jesus? So excited that he has taken away your sins, that you are are forgiven. May we be reminded this morning of the atoning sacrifice of Christ, that Christ would take our place. And then to ponder and say, God, in light of who you are, who am I? I wanna be a voice. I wanna be available for my life, my actions and my words to point people to Christ. And I wanna be a servant. I'm choosing this morning To serve you. I'm not worthy even to do the the simplest task. Pray as we go into this week that God would give us opportunities to speak about Christ with believers and unbelievers. Believers need to be encouraged about Christ. Unbelievers need to to hear about the reality of Christ and the love of Christ. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to celebrate communion. Jesus, I thank you for this section of scripture, the reminder of the greatness of who you are, that you're the creator of the universe, you're the word, who spoke all things into existence, became human flesh for us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and you became our sacrifice to take away our sins. And as we celebrate communion this morning, we do ask that it wouldn't be simply a tradition or something that we do out of habit or old hat, but as we hold the elements of your broken body and your shed blood, that we would be reminded of your worthiness, Jesus, your greatness, and humbled. God, would you fill us with your spirit as you have promised to immerse us in the spirit? Would you help us to understand the life in the spirit in a greater way? And would you cause our lives to count? Would you cause our lives to matter? We want to be a voice that points people to you. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.